listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. Congress and Corruption Roosevelt met with labor and business leaders within a week of declaring war with Japan and Germany to get an agreement that there would be no strikes or lockouts during the war. Labor disputes would be resolved by a newly created War Labor Board. Strikes diminished but did not disappear. By 1943, union leaders from the AFL's William Green to John L. Lewis of the United Millworkers had concluded that while industry appeared to be profiting from the war, labor was not. Wages were failing to keep up with inflation. The War Labor Board worked out a wage formula increasing wages by inflation rates but used an inflation rate based on rates from January 1941 through May 1942. A period of time, inflation was fairly stable. Thus, the wage increases never topped 15%. They believed the companies were seeing far better returns. The board fulfilled its mandate to keep labor peace during the war, providing settlements in 17,650 disputes and approving 415,000 voluntary wage adjustments. Almost 8 million Americans had been unemployed in December 1940, but by December 1943, the number of unemployed was only 1 million. In 1941, 1.5 million jobs in the defense industry, compared to 20 million people, including 5 million women in 1943. Patriotism and loyalty was the response by labor, agreeing to increase production quotas and adhering to the no-strike pledge. The spirit of partnership with the government only solidified labor's connections to the ruling Democratic Party, which the Republicans increasingly resented. My stock in trade is being the ogre. That's how I make my way, Lewis once confided to an associate, and conservatives were only too happy to apply to loose that monstrous character of big labor ever endowed with influence and privilege. A series of wildcat strikes of Coalfields began in 1943. Lewis announced his willingness to fight when, April 1943, the contract between the United Mine Workers and coal operators came up for renewal. Lewis sought a $2 per day increase for miners plus an added form of compensation known as portal-to-portal pay. To cover the time miners spent giving to the mine face underground. Lewis refused to attend meetings. War Labor Board called to examine the situation and announced that the UMW miners would not enter coal owner's property in the absence of a contract. On May 2nd, Roosevelt ordered a government takeover of the mines. The situation infuriated the coal operators, who were stuck with the government's possession of their mines even as no coal was being extracted from the ground. Lewis agreed to a six-month wait-and-see period and ordered miners 
back to work. Lewis won the miners $1.50 per day wage increase higher than the inflation formula. The strike ended, but it cost Lewis, the UMW, and the labor movement in bad publicity. Lewis's experience of being shredded in the press for appearing unhelpful to the needs of the war was a problem all organized labor shared. Texas Representative Holton Summers submitted a bill, soon to be called the Smith-Connolly Act, authorized the president to seize operations of a factory where a strike threatened national security. It mandated a 30-day cooling-off period before any work stoppage, put criminal penalties in place against those who persisted in urging or leading a strike, and forbid union contributions to political campaigns. Labor did not like the idea of establishing criminal offenses for strike activities, but Lewis had handed reactionary forces in Congress a weapon with which they might now deny not only the positive results of wartime production cooperation, which were, in fact, considerable, but the New Deal's good works as well. Just as the government had acted to empower labor in the 1930s, they could do the opposite. The AFL's William Green warned the Roosevelt administration that labor would respond at the polls if the act became law, along with characterizing the pending bill as a fascist measure pointed like a revolver at the heart of labor. Daniel J. Tobin of the Teamsters similarly warned both parties that any crucifying of the trade union movement would reverberate loudly in the election of 1944. Smith Connolly passed, but Roosevelt vetoed it, but Congress overrode the veto. The CIO formed the Political Action Committee, PAC, to energize and focus the labor vote in the elections of 1944. The PAC distributed literature linking the Gulf victory in war with the aim of post-war labor policies that would ensure ongoing New Deal concerns for labor's rights. Instead of an independent labor party, the PAC would serve as a counterbalance to the ever more polished lobbying efforts by nationally powerful corporations and their front groups like the National Association of Manufacturers and the Chamber of Commerce. The leader of the PAC, Sidney Hillman said workers can no longer work out even their most immediate day-to-day problems through negotiations with their employers. Wages, hours, and working conditions have become increasingly dependent upon policies adopted by Congress, and the labor must bring its full influence to bear in shaping these decisions. The PAC's agenda went beyond just getting Roosevelt elected to a fourth term. Although that was important, it included broader reforms for the post-war era such as investment in public works and public housing, assistance for returning GIs, and public subsidized medical insurance. The PAC was very effective at the grassroots level, using a strong get-out-the-vote drive directed at women and minorities that was unprecedented for its time. Time derided the PAC's campaign material as the slickest political propaganda produced in the United States in a generation. 
The specter of labor or even Jewish domination of the president reappeared in the allegations that Roosevelt had granted Hillman say so over the Democratic Party's vice presidential pick of the fall of 1944 election. In 1945, the war ended with the nation cheering, including labor. The reconversion of the economy to peacetime was a challenge to the nation, and it would have to face without the man who guided it through the Depression and the war, for President Roosevelt had died that April while at his summer home in Warm Springs, Georgia. American workers had suffered badly from the loss of jobs, overtime pay, and bonus pay following the armistice that ended World War I and the related sharp reduction in full-capacity production. This resulted in the widespread labor strife of 1919. Organized labor was determined that no such collapse reoccur, although it was unclear how the spirit of progress that had governed industrial relations since 1933 would carry over into the post-war era. With troubling indicators of reaction, such as Smith Connolly already visible, there was much to mourn in Roosevelt's passing. But from labor's perspective, nothing would be missed more than his fundamental understanding of workers' value to society, his belief that they deserved an industrial citizenship that guaranteed work security and democracy, specifically the rights to organize and petition for reforms. Wage increases are imperative to cushion the shock to our workers, to sustain adequate purchasing power, and to raise national income, Harry Truman, the new president, said. Industry's handsome wartime profits, he believed, would contribute to what he hoped would be a gradual transition. Roosevelt's concern for the nation's wage earners had become a harder sell. Now the situation had changed. America industry, having responded heroically to the demands of wartime production was ready to flex its power. Labor had had its moment. It had been rewarded amply by the New Deal. Now with the crisis of economic trial and global conflict receding, its loyal contributions to the war effort was often overlooked. Better remembered were the prominent episodes of wartime strike mischief. Truman convened a National Labor Management Conference in Washington. Truman greeted the attendees by thanking both sides for their wartime cooperation, but reminded his listeners that in the absence of wartime governmental controls, the future of peaceful labor management relations, the whole system of private enterprise and individual opportunity now rested on their shoulders. You can almost imagine well-dressed executives leaving the meeting arm-in-arm with their scruffier labor counterparts, but it did not happen. As Truman's remarks was responded to on a whole, somewhat listlessly, no actual procedures were agreed upon to make labor management relations function smoothly once wartime restrictions expired. Truman asked Congress to consider new legislation based on the Railway Labor Act of 1926, which had outlawed yellow dog contracts and safeguarded rail and airline workers' rights to form or join a union. Capitol Hill, however, appeared more intent on correcting, not expanding upon the government's existing labor policies. In late 1945 and early 1946, strikes were rampant in Stanford, Pittsburgh, Rochester, and Oakland, while a nationwide steel walkout in 1946 took 400,000 workers off the job at the time the biggest coordinated work stoppage in American history. 
not to be left out. The conservatives' favorite nuisance, John L. Lewis, was soon added again, seeking wage increases for the UMW as well as the creation of a miners' welfare fund to which coal operators would contribute. The operators refused Lewis's entreaties, and on April 1, 1946, tens of thousands of miners abandoned their jobs. Truman had the government seize the mines on May 21, citing coal as an essential resource and claiming the strike had created a national emergency. When the miners refused to work on government-controlled mines, the administration obtained an injunction against the strike. Lewis citing the supposedly injunction limiting protections of the Norlagardi Act openly defied it and was charged with contempt. This high-stakes standoff wound up before the Supreme Court, which in United States versus United Mine Workers ruled that protections of Norris LaGuardia had been superseded by the terms of Smith Connolly and that the government was entitled to seek an injunction where a strike endangered national security. Lewis and the miners had to back down, but in 1947, when Smith Connolly expired, the UW boss renewed his demand for an operator-funded welfare fund and succeeded in obtaining it. Even Truman's patience had started to wear thin when 300,000 railroad trainmen and locomotive engineers struck, rejecting a government-sponsored settlement. The president threatened to have the government run the railroads and to have soldiers protect replacement workers. Truman went before Congress in a mood, warning that he would seek injunctions against individual rail union leaders assigned federal arbitrators to set wages and put any profit earned by government operations of the railway into the U.S. Treasury. The railway unions called off their strike as Truman was at podium issuing his strong remarks. Representatives of South Dakota, Francis Case, sought to act on Truman's shifting sympathies by creating a bill that would create a federal mediation board, a 60-day pre-strike cooling-off period, and the surrender of workers' Wagner Act rights for violating the cooling-off period restrictions. It also banned secondary boycotts and allowed for injunctions against certain forms of picketing. The CIO started a petition urging the president to veto the case bill, gathering over a million signatures. Truman, heeding the concerns of labor and the advice of his attorney general, Tom Clark, vetoed the bill. The Republicans bided their time not con controlling both houses of Congress since 1930, but the 1946 midterms were expected to bring the historic Roosevelt era on Capitol Hill to an end, and in November they gained enough new seats in both houses of Congress to achieve a veto-proof majority. The Republicans issued a series of proposed amendments to the National Labor Relations Act of 1933 that would become known as the Taft-Hartley Bill. After its Republican sponsors, Ohio Senator Robert Taft, chairman of the Senate Labor Committee, and his House counterpart, Congressman Fred Hartley Jr. of New Jersey, Taft, also known as Mr. Republican, had made no secret of his intention to cast out a great many chapters of the New Deal, if not the whole book. It took 14 years to rid this country of prohibition, said Alfred Sloan, CEO of General Motors. 
It is going to take a good while to rid the country of the New Deal, but sooner or later the axe falls and we get a change. The bill was introduced in the House first, was a comprehensive denial of the rights labor had won over the past generation. It would give management greater control of how unions representation elections were conducted and allow individual states to pass anti-labor restrictions of their own. Most significantly, right-to-work laws stipulating that union membership could not be required as a condition of employment. In effect, an undermining of the closed shop. It forbade industry-wide collective bargaining. Employers could sue unions over secondary boycotts. Unions would have to notify management of any intention to challenge or change a contract and could be sued in federal court for breaching one. They were prohibited from giving money to political campaigns or using funds from treasuries to aid candidates, and union officers were required to sign statements that they were not members of the Communist Party. Finally, it expanded presidential authority to obtain injunctions against strikes thought to be endangering national health and safety. Critics of the bill in Congress revealed that the bill had been written by corporate lawyers working for the National Association of Manufacturers and the Chamber of Commerce. As evidence, Democratic Congressman John Blatnick of Minnesota circulated a list of legislative recommendations drawn up by NAM in 1946 and distributed as part of a booklet titled now, let's build America. It showed a clear similarity to the House version of Taft-Hartley. Although these charges were cured in the House, debate on the bill itself was limited. In the Senate, the discussion was longer with those for the bill say the Wagner Act was a kind of experiment, one designed with good intentions, but it had been extreme in some of its effects. Those against the bill pointed out that it was a success and getting it would set back industrial relations half a century, that more people were joining unions which had a stabilizing effect on the economy and all of society. The ILGWU's David Dubinsky, terming Taft-Hartley a monstrous piece of legislation and a body blow to the democracy. The ominous details of Taft-Hartley could be challenged, but harder to defeat was the sense that it was Conservatives who were prepared to do the nation's new business while labor unions and their faithful remained entrenched in the old. Understandably, labor became distracted by the bill's requirements of an anti-communist oath. Many union officials, led by John Lewis, decried as insulting the idea that government would infantilize union officials by this stipulation. Indeed, such an imposition seemed to validate Lewis's long-held fear of what might come of labor's bonding so tightly with the Democratic Party. The New Deal and government control of labor unions through the National Labor Relations Act. The House bill was intentionally harsh so the Senate could compromise, thus convincing Truman that the final bill contained enough compromise that it was veto-proof. Even in its supposedly milder form, the bill which swept through both houses by substantial margins, 308 to 107 in the House and 68 to 24 in the Senate, offered a potent anti-labor restructuring of the country's industrial relations. Lewis described the conservatives' handiwork as 
the first ugly savage thrust of fascism in America. President Truman had no choice but to veto the bill. His veto was overridden, and in June 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act became law. The passage of this bill did not result in Congress passing more bills as Taft had hoped, nor did it prove effective at quelling union activity as labor had feared. with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.